0: Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're right with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show
1: I know many of you are probably tuning in, expecting me to uh, to be running the audio for the Neocon debate I had last night. Unfortunately, Kevin has not afforded uh, me the audio on that yet, and I apologize for, th- for the delay. I'm, I'm sure that many of you have already watched it on his YouTube channel. I'll be uploading the video to my YouTube as well, and the audio tonight, allegedly, if he ever gets it to me. Um, yeah, but I thought it went really well, and uh, I think that uh, I conveyed the the emotional... Side of the anti-interventionist stance In a way that is hopefully compelling To even a neocon Or at least his audience Which is who I was really trying to reach Since I knew that ultimately I was very unlikely to change his mind Uh, I would like to dissuade a few of the neocons That are his fanboys or sycophants From going down the same path So uh, hopefully I did that If you appreciated my suffering I would ask that you subscribe to my YouTube And not his uh, Because you probably don't need to hear any more from him I'm sure and uh, you could search Liberty Lockdown on YouTube to find it. I'll also post the description in the, uh, the description for this episode. So hopefully you guys hop on board. Uh, I obviously have a far larger podcast base as that was the standard medium I was using to begin. And I only started the YouTube about a month ago. And uh, we're already pushing a good amount of subscribers. So I really appreciate the support. And obviously if you enjoyed uh, my performance, also a five-star review on iTunes is very helpful to help get the word out. So... In the meantime, we have a tremendous episode, actually. It's uh, it's with a college professor who knows, like an encyclopedia, every aspect of the history of anarchism. It is truly a treat to speak with him. So, here we go. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. I have a very special guest with me today. His name is Keith Preston, and he is a author. Uh, he has a website called attackthesystem.com. Thank you for coming in, Keith.
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: Thanks, man. Um, so... I wanted to have you in because I know that you're a bit of a specialist or a historian when it comes to anarchism. And as a recent convert from libertarianism to anarchism, I thought it would be a good resource to me and to my audience to kind of get a, a background on, uh, you know, a bit of the history there. So,
0: okay.
2: Well, what would you like to know? There's a lot of places we could start. Um...
1: Well, yeah. I I, I think um, I'm just going to throw out a, a couple a couple common rejoinders that people have to anarchism and and see if we have some historical uh you know cognates or or stories that we can lay out to try and you know calm people's concerns (laughs) about giving anarchism a a shot so let's start with this um first off many people think that there's never been an anarchist society and that uh ultimately they are impossible that you you're doomed to failure uh if not for you know another state that invades, or simply that people demand governance. Uh, so, can you give us any historical examples of of anarchist, not states, but anarchist territories that lasted for a while? Communities, and yeah, uh,
2: I actually gave a lecture on this um, in London, probably about three years ago. Uh, in fact, the video of that lecture, I believe, is still online somewhere. If you Google um, anarchist communities. Past, present, and future, I think is what I called it. Um, but it's about an hour long. And I go through a fairly extensive overview of stateless territories and autonomous communities and things like that that have existed for, um, you know, over different historical periods, as well as in the world today, as well as proto anarchies and all of that. Uh, but the first thing you have to remember is that most of human history uh, was such that people did not live in states. Uh, we, you know, depending on you know whose anthropology you you buy into, uh, you know, our, our species and its prototypes are anywhere between three and six million years old, uh, and states, as we understand them, really didn't begin until about 5,500 years ago. Right, so by the norms of history, uh, it is the state that is abnormal, and you know, human beings lived in what would today be considered anarchies. Uh, now, of course, the, the rejoinder to that is, yeah, but they lived under primitive conditions. They were hunters and gatherers and all of that. Yeah, but it does show that we're not hardwired to live in states per se. Uh, that's that's not what our you know, evolutionary process uh, involved. Now, um, there's an excellent book uh, by a, a, an anthropologist named James Scott. He is a professor of anthropology, either at Yale or Princeton or one of those, one of the biggies. Um, But he actually traces the origins of the state uh, going back to the, um, you know, roughly 5,500, 6,000 years ago during the time that the earliest uh, civilizations in the Levant started to emerge like Egypt and um, uh, Babylon and Samaria, some of those. And what he shows is that the state was always based on a system of conquest. That the way it started is that um, when human beings developed the ability to do uh, basic agriculture, you started to see more permanent settlements and then different settlements would conquer other settlements and then they would create a system of slavery and taxes and uh, rulership and then a ruling class that's passed down through family lineages, lineages and then they would create a religion to, to sanctify this, you know, the idea of the emperor as the king the, of the god or something like that. Uh, a lot of the uh, gender role uh, divisions that are more familiar to modern civilization uh, started to develop during that time as well. Uh, so the state is something that came about through conquest and plunder. Now, what now anarchist historians and anthropologists and economists have always known this, uh, as, as, well, as, long, as well as libertarians and some socialists and, and some classical liberals as well. So this is not new information. But Scott, as a modern anthropologist, has really developed this, I think, and taken it to the next level. But even uh, throughout the history of states going back five or 6,000 years, we still see that uh, up until about 200 years ago, most people still lived as hunters and gatherers. The state did not come to dominate the entire world until the 19th and 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even without that, even without thinking about hunters and gatherers, if we look at different uh, societies that have existed going all the way back to antiquity, we can find plenty of examples of isolated uh, enclaves or communities or stateless territories or whatever that existed without what is commonly thought of as a state. I know a lot of anarcho-capitalists like to cite uh, medieval Iceland, medieval Ireland as examples, and and they were just at least to some degree. uh, Another one that frequently gets cited is the American Old West, that was very anarchistic. there, uh, there are also examples of uh, industrial or quasi-industrial societies that existed at least for a time without states. There was the Spanish um, collectives that emerged during the Spanish Civil War in Catalonia and Aragon and some, uh, regions like that. Uh, in Bulgaria, there was an anarchistic commune that existed for a time in the early 20th century, uh, called Stranza. In Korea, uh, there was a... Uh, uh, anarchist enclave called Shenmen that existed for a while in the 1930s. Uh, there was a place like that in, uh, in Manchuria in China at one point. China actually had a very large anarchist movement back in the uh, uh, early to mid-20th century, in the pre-communist era. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a place in California called Slab City. It's basically a, uh, a, a place kind of out in the desert where a lot of, you know, kind of uh ne'er do wells go, and, and they well, exist largely independently of any state. Um, James Scott, whom I just mentioned, he actually wrote a book called "The Art of Not Being Governed," and he, he writes about uh, this is another one of his books. but He writes about the Zomia region, which is in uh, Southeast Asia, roughly in between China and and like Vietnam and, and and Laos and Cambodia, those regions. But there's this vast region that has about 20 million people that the state has never taken root there. It's essentially a stateless area without, with about 20 million people. Now it's an agricultural uh, region. They don't really have much heavy industry and that kind of thing. Uh, but it is uh, a, a stateless region. And because it's very high up in terms of altitude, uh, it's always been difficult for any external party to conquer it. So that's why the, you know, the Chinese or the uh, the Indian government or some of the others have never been able to reach into it and, and penetrate
1: it. Um, that is that is really fascinating. So let, let me let me jump a little bit ahead and and ask, you know, other than um, locales that are, are basically unconquerable, like you just described, why why have so many of the others been relegated to statehood at, at some point in their history? Has it has it always been conquering forces from other states or, or oftentimes does it come from within?
2: Uh, both. Um, you, you, many societies that have existed historically that were stateless or quasi stateless, uh, eventually uh, succumbed to conquest. Uh, There were others that internally sort of evolved into a more ossified state system. Um, Although you can find examples of communities that exist within the context of states that have largely uh, evolved as kind of micro nations or micro societies or something like that. Um, You can uh, if you google uh, something like autonomous zones or something like that you can find a lot of these places even in places you would never expect to find them like I, I know there's one in Russia that's sort of a territory that the state doesn't really have much to do with um, in, in, in Europe even which is a very state saturated place but there you have these micro states like Andorra and Liechtenstein and uh, San Marino and Monaco, that you know, the other, I don't know that they're formally stateless, but they might as well be. I mean, they have these very tiny autonomous territories that have uh, no real government of any significance. Uh, you, know, you pretty much can do what you want to do there. Um, and of course, you've had some islands in different places where people more or less do their own thing, uh, you know, island countries or island, island uh, nations. There's a region in the Western Sahara that's basically stateless. It's sort of on the border between Egypt and Sudan. From what I hear, it's a haven for drug traffic because a lot of them kind of hide out there. I had an Egyptian guy once explained that to me. But in fact, there was a guy from the United States that went there a few years ago and was trying to start his own country or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, these are just a few examples. Uh, yeah, I could probably cite hundreds of different, different examples like this. Um, I can but, tell
1: you're, you're an encyclopedia, man. Um, yeah. So, so let me ask, uh, you know, what, what is the future for converting to a stateless society? Do you think that, that our best hope is to have kind of a, a micro nation within the United States or, or other nations, or is there a chance for a larger, um, disassembly of a state government to kind of create an anarchic utopia?
2: <laughs> well, you know, there could be either one, um, one group that I find very interesting that I don't belong to them, uh, so I don't speak for them or anything like that. There's a group called the Startup Societies Foundation. And I've actually looked over some of their material and they'll give these examples of different places around the world where people are creating uh, what might be called in- intentional nations or intentional communities or new autonomous zones. And, uh, you know, it, it includes things like eco-villages, like a lot of the ecology people are into. And then there's these special economic zones that you find in some countries where basically people work out some kind of deal with the government where they're going to have special, you know, trade regulations or lack of trade regulations. And usually you find these in poor countries where they're trying to stimulate and grow the economy. Uh, In fact, they even have one of these in North Korea, at least, oh, they did at one point. I don't know if it's still there, but China, China's famous for having these, but you you can find them in parts of Latin America.
1: You can find them in India. Um, Puerto Puerto Rico is kind of a, a variant of that right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you have these SEZs in different places. Um, And then you have, uh, you know, of course you have uh, Patrick Friedman's idea of the um, seasteading, you know, building autonomous countries that are floating on the ocean. I'm not sure how technologically feasible that is. I've heard parallel ideas like subterranean colonies and and building stuff, you know, colonies high on the mountains in the Himalayas or the Andes or, you know, the or, uh, you know, of course, I, I have a friend of mine who's very interested in space colonization. I think that's a little ways off. Uh, but as far as things that are more uh, down to earth, literally, uh, <laughs> there's, uh, yeah, I mean, even we can find plenty of examples from history of communities that managed to achieve some degree of autonomy, even when they were com- uh, submerged within a state system, basically because the state just didn't think it was worth the trouble to bother them. One interesting example is during the Ottoman Empire, you had the uh, what was called the uh, Malay system or millet system. I think it's millet in English and Malay in Fran- French. But uh, uh, it was a system where different ethnic tribes and different religious minorities essentially governed themselves and pretty much did their own thing. I mean, the Ottoman Empire was a, uh, it was a it was a traditional monarchical uh, empire, and it was uh, a theocracy. It was actually under Sharia law and an Islamic theocracy. But then they had this idea, well, okay, what they call the people of the book, which in Islam means, you know, the the, the religions that would they considered to be the predecessors to Islam, which was Christianity and Judaism, I think, Zoroastrianism, and there's some others, some versions of Islam consider Hinduism to be part of this. But uh, they would more or less just let those religions self-govern themselves according to their own norms and customs, you know, rather than try to force them into this kind of Islamic caliphate, even though they were still territorially within an Islamic caliphate. So you do find examples of that. Um, you can find a lot of civilizations from history where you manage to have high degrees of autonomy for overarching state structures, even if you didn't have pure anarchy. Um, ancient Greece was actually very interesting because Greece existed for the, uh, centuries as a collection of thousands of independent cities, uh, which included all kinds of weird, uh, political systems. I mean, some, some, some by our standards would have been just really, were really strange. Um, you know, so it was kind of like this, um, uh, you know, Greece was like this, uh, haven of, uh, what today might be called, uh, communes or intentional communities or free cities or something like that, where people had all these weird experimental forms of government and that kind of stuff. Um, kind of, in fact, I know when, um, the first time I ever read Robert Nozick's book, *The uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia*, uh, if you're a lot of your audience of libertarians, they might know what this book is. But uh, yeah. yeah, but when I, I remember when I read that, I was like, "What you, he's talking about all these kinds of experimental utopian societies and this kind of libertarian metapolitics. And I remember thinking, "This sounds a lot like Greece." Um, the, uh, another example was the Holy Roman Empire, which, as uh, I think it was Voltaire who said, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor empire, but it was essentially a federation of hundreds of independent kingdoms. I and mean, this was in the Middle Ages, it was a, you know, a feudal type of system, but it was, a, it was a federation of hundreds of kingdoms. And then no one, there was no real monopoly on power because you had all these different power centers that were always trying to get the upper hand, but no one ever could. So it was kind of a quasi-anarchy unintentionally, you know, it was like because you had the, the kings and the emperor and the church and the, and all these different forces could never really, uh they, you know, they basically just fought each other to a standstill. And then you also had these uh, free cities uh, that were basically these chartered cities where they would get more or less an agreement with the king or the emperor or whatever, to just go off and do their own thing, I mean, which were not dissimilar to these uh, special economic zones I was talking about uh, earlier in modern times. So there's all kinds of institutional methods that have been used that where individuals and groups have been able to achieve some high degree of autonomy even is if it, they're not in a perfect anarchist utopia
1: right right is there you know the the common the common pushback that you'll get is that anarchism would be a constant state of having to fight off people that you know uh, the kind of the Hoppian idea of, of removal of people that are interested in forming a state is that is that an inevitability in, in your historical analysis? No, because,
2: no, because most of these places that I'm talking about now, they, they were sort of anarchies by accident. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, it's not like you had a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, we're going to go form an anarchist utopia." You know, and therefore anybody that's there that you know doesn't agree with our version of an anarchist utopia, we've got to kick uh, them out or whatever. Typically, what would happen is that these were just colonies that people formed, usually because they were trying to get away from some other place, or it's, it was something that emerged in the middle of a civil war or conventional state authority broke down, um, or they were simply trading colonies or trading outposts that just emerged as a matter of convenience, or it was a situation like I described at the Old Roman Empire where they fought so much nobody could ever get the upper hand. So, this so was just just had an anarchy by default or quasi anarchy. That's kind of how these these things tend to develop.
1: Well, so from my from my vantage point as someone who is seeking this uh, this elusive utopia, uh, you know, I'm most interested in finding some landmass with like-minded people. Uh, kind of the the you know idea of federalism with the United States foundation, uh, but but on a much grander scale, where you have, say, a thousand different options within the United States mm-hmm. or something something like that, right. where I could find some small enclave of like-minded people who are, you know, anarcho-capitalists and and believe in private property rights, but also believe in self-defense and don't want uh, a state that's taxing them to death. Uh, is, that, is that too utopic? Is that, a, is that an impossibility? Well, no, in
2: American history, you actually find quite a bit of that. Uh, I mean, more so in the colonial era and in the 19th century. Uh, but uh, a good example is the Mormons. I mean, that's how we got Utah. You know, I mean, that was basically a utopian religious colony for Mormons. Uh, but there were a lot of these um, earlier, more fringier religious communities actually had places like that. You had the, uh, you were, you know, in fact, a lot of the original states were that, you know, uh, Pennsylvania was a Quaker colony and, and Rhode Island, I think, was a Baptist colony. And the reason you had them was because in, these, these were groups that were all thrown out of England, basically, in the. Church of England didn't want them, so they sent them all over here, Uh, uh, and there were a lot of others. There there were Hutterite colonies, the Shakers, were another group like that. You also had these early, uh, in the 19th century, the utopian communes started to be a common idea. Like Some of the more famous ideas like that were uh, Robert Owen's plans for this perfect utopian uh, society uh, called New Harmony. Um, and you can you, you, well, if you read a lot of the old utopian writers from the 19th century during the early industrial revolution where they started developing this idea of human perfectibility they would come up with this idea of what our perfect you know scientifically planned modeled utopia looked like and there were all there were all kinds of ideas some of which seemed really bizarre and they were kind of like science fiction and, and many ways Um,
1: yeah well a lot of people would a lot of people would think my utopia is science fiction so yeah yeah well
2: it's all (laughs) relative you know it's all relative because a lot of stuff that used to be considered science fiction is now real so uh yeah it is what it is um uh, yeah um but yeah i mean there's there are you can there's all there are places all over the world actually where that are examples of what kind of like what you're talking about. I mean, now their theme may not be libertarianism and maybe something else, but you have these themed communities that kind of do their own thing. There's a place in uh, India on the coast, I think it's on the coast of the Indian Ocean called Auroraville. That's sort of this kind of hippie-ish, new Agey, kind of Hinduish, you know, Eastern mystical uh, colony. But it has the people that live there are from all over the world, you know, so it's sort of this kind of, uh, commune of, of, you know, people interested in mystical spirituality, very sick this type of thing. Oh, but it's somewhat, it's serious though. I mean, it's, it's, it's existed for a long time, for decades and successfully, um, there's a place in South Africa called Arania, which was a conservative, it's sort of like a conservative, imagine a conservative anarcho-communist homeland or something. That's kind of what this is. You know, it's, uh, these are ethnic Afrikaners, uh, were kind of, in a way, remnant of the old apartheid regime, but rather than uh, blend into the, the new system, they just kind of faded off into their own commune. And there's a place uh, in Spain called Marina Lida, which is just the opposite of this. It's like a leftist kind of socialist commune uh, that's kind of anarchistic in a, in, a, in a left anarchist type of way. Marina Lida, is, it's kind of like an eco-village or something like that. And, and you can find many other examples of these kinds of places reflecting all kinds of beliefs and, and value systems and ideologies. And I think anarchism in practice would be that. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a matter of everybody everywhere putting up black flags and that kind of stuff as much as it's uh, just people doing their own thing in these ways.
1: Well, the, the reason the reason I ask is because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm most interested in in getting some landmass in the United States where I could take, you know, fellow people that are English speaking that have a similar background and, and kind of a similar uh, belief in, in, you know, telling the government to fuck off. And, and, and I, I'm just curious with the magnitude of the state, the, the U S government at this point, do you think that's essentially an impossibility? Uh, do you think that they would, they would crack down if you try to do that with any sizable amount of people? Uh, well,
2: I think it's a good possibility that they would. Um, in fact, I actually think the United States would probably be one of the most difficult places in the world to do this uh, because the state is so pervasive and efficient and technologically sophisticated. Uh, it would probably be easier to do this in some more, you know, semi-rural area of China or India or in Africa or Latin America or Russia or even in uh, uh, you know, even in Europe, even in places in in, in Western Europe or Central Europe, I think. Um, in fact, there was a a group a few years ago. I'm not sure what the status of this is now, but there were people that were actually trying to start a new country uh, that was basically going to be a libertarian country called Lieberland. and I think yeah. it, it was going to be on the border of Croatia. One, one of the, yeah, that sounds right. I, I met one of the guys that founded that once that project. I'm, I'm not sure what status of that is I think one mistake they made from what I know about them is that they were just too flagrant in what they were doing like they went in and both little fingers blazing and, and <laughs> saying we are the you know anarchist conquerors or whatever and uh, it's probably not best not to do it that way it's probably best to be more subtle and kind of under the radar about it um, but uh, the United States was is probably has more barriers to that than a lot of places although not impossibly so. Um, One thing, I I saw an article recently that raised a lot of people's eyebrows, but I thought it was interesting in the sense that apparently some of the tech companies are making some kind of arrangement with Las Vegas or with uh, the state of Nevada, I believe, where they're going to create some of these special economic zones actually in Nevada. Now, uh, one reason that companies corporations tend to like these special economic zones is because they can get away without paying taxes and defying regulations and things like that a lot of people from the left don't like them because they're saying well they're just creating up creating a fiefdom or something like that but what these places do is uh they do create kind of a, a milieu where you have a largely autonomous settlement where people can kind of go and do their own thing like there are people who go to China and live in Shenzhen and places like that. Some of these SEZs where they're not really involved in the business act, like but because the rules and all of that tend to be fairly lax, they just kind of do their own thing and kind of you know, blend into the scenery and where they can do that without being bothered.
1: Um, my, my buddy, my buddy from Twitter, uh, Evan Freshwater will kill me if I don't ask you this. So he, his belief is that uh, essentially Alaska, because it is the most, harsh and the most uh you know distant from where most of our forces are it it would probably be the best bet you know just a really rural patch of land with you know not more than maybe 100 people or something would probably be left alone is that is that too uh too utopic as well
2: no alaska is probably one of the better places for that or one of the northeastern states vermont uh new hampshire maine one of those you know you probably get away with some of that upstate new york the mm-hmm. uh, Dakotas, you know, Montana, some of
1: those regions. Um, well, ov- obviously, you know, the, the goal of this, um, not for greed purposes, but just for freedom purposes, would be to not pay federal taxes. Uh, right. Is that normally how these types of little communes get taken out? Is that, that they hit them with tax evasion or something to that effect? Or do they just come in guns blazing?
2: Well, that's part of the problem. Uh, you're going to have to, m- most of the places I know of that function like this, sometimes they they're sort of submerged in the state system where they may have to pay some taxes to the state or other times they may not but they're they live in, they're typically in countries where the civil service and all that is not very efficient so it's easier to get away with all that kind of stuff um, you know the the US it has a more efficient civil service system so you're, you're, you you know, you you're running into problems one problem though that a lot of people in the United States that have tried to have projects like this have done is that they you know, they've made the same mistake as the Land guys. They've tried to, you know, be too in your face about it. Uh, you know, the last thing you want to do if you're trying to create a place like this is be white out in the open. Oh, we here, we, you know, we're in our community. We don't obey the law, you know. Or, uh, <laughs> oh, and by the way, we've got a you know a barn full of us, you know, AK-47s too. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's what got the Branch Davidians in, in trouble, if you're familiar with that story. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's the way not to do it. I'd say if you want to know how not to do it, look at the branch of and things like that and, and
1: do the opposite. So you got got to be real low-key about it. Well, yeah. that, that, that makes radar. sense. What's that? Fly under radar. Yeah, no, I mean, that seems kind of, uh, you know, an obligation at this point, given how, how overreaching and how overpowering the government can be. Um, so uh, another common rejoinder is that, you know, you're going to end up in a constant state of, of, you know, he who has the biggest gun uh, controls the, the anarchist territory. It, has that been the historical uh, case?
2: No, not necessarily, because most of these kinds of groups tend to have some shared, uh, I guess you could say, cultural norms that sort of create their social fabric for them. So like anything else, there are people who are recognized as legitimate leaders and, and people who aren't. Uh, now, some of these intentional communities that I'm talking about are kind of cult-like. There, are, there have been some of those that are kind of like religious cults on the branch of Indians, for, for an example. Uh, I mean, most of them aren't, aren't like that on that level. Even the, very, even the cultic ones aren't really like on that extreme. But uh, uh, yeah, but it's, it's not just a matter of, you know, like, like, a, like a gang or something like that, where it's like he's got the, you know, the strongest arm. Uh, because that, that's
1: that's the mythology about the wild west so i think that's that's probably why people think that way it, was that the case in the wild west was it as no lawless?
2: no no. Yeah. no the wild west was not nearly as violent or nearly as lawless as people make it out to be you know mostly it was just a collection of farming settlements and that kind of stuff i mean most of the old western communities probably had more in common with the amish than they did with like you know jesse james and the wire <laughs> in fact well, another example of pirates uh there's a lot of misconceptions about how pirates worked pirate ships were typically fairly democratic in the sense that you might actually have an, a, an elected leader or, or things like that you know it, it wasn't uh it, there's this image of pirate ships being set up in the same way as say the mafia or something like that it's like a bunch of john gottys failing around and there there was some of that i mean there was that but it was that wasn't sort of the norm either uh you know they, they were you know they were just entrepreneurs you know it was uh Another interesting example uh, are the Maroons. The Maroons were uh, groups of runaway slaves in the Western Hemisphere, some of them from the the United States and some from Central America and the Caribbean and all of that. But you'd have all these escaped slaves and then assorted others who would form their own uh, intentional uh, societies among themselves. And they functioned, you know, kind of like pirates or something like that. They actually engaged in a lot of guerrilla warfare against a lot of the state systems that they were surrounded by, and in fact, some of the some of the guerrilla warfare techniques that the maroons uh, developed are actually taught in military academies today. Like if you go to West Point, and study guerrilla warfare theory, they're probably going to tell you about the maroons at some point.
1: Interesting. So, given that you know we we have so few modern examples of kind of anarchistic societies that that exist and thrive with any significant population size. Um, and and yet our historical development, you know, our evolutionary development was one without governance for the most part. Uh, what is it about the modern man that has led us to be so just overran by, by governance? Is it, is it a natural evolution at this point, do you think, or is it still kind of an, an abomination?
0: Well,
2: it's uh... Well, keep in mind, as recently as 200 years ago, most people were still hunters and gatherers. right? Mm-hmm. So the state in that sense is a historical aberration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think a lot of that is rooted really in population growth is one thing, Te- technological expansion is another thing. Uh, in fact, that's why you have a faction of anarchists called primitivists who say, well, we don't believe in technology because it leads to states and that kind of stuff. You know, their followers of Ted Kaczynski and people like that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the, yeah, there, I mean, it's due to population growth, technological expansion, static agricultural uh, settlements had a lot to do with this because you had, uh, once you have people that are not just wanderers and not just nomads or hunters and gatherers, but all of a sudden you have people there in a static community, then a more ossified infrastructure tends to develop. And then that leads to conquest and violence and fights over land and, and that kind of stuff. So you know that's where the the problem comes in, and so, it's just,
1: in a, a spiral from there. So in a, in a sense, it's the success of the anarchist community that will lead to potential invasion. Am I reading that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have a successful community that's say wealthy or prosperous, then obviously there are going to be people who set their sights on it. Right. Uh, no, that was actually an issue in Greece and it, because Athens was actually the more prosperous, um, of any of the city states. And then they tended to also be one of the most aggressive. Uh, you know, if you read about the history of the wars that occurred in Greece, like the Peloponnesian Wars, usually that's what it amounted to, Greece and its maybe trying to overrun everybody else. Um, and then they they'll talk they'll talk about how all the Spartans they were like these fascistic bad guys, you know, their military fortresses and all that kind of stuff. But what they were actually trying to do was defend themselves against the, the Athenians and, and and you know, but even in that system though, it, when um, when Alexander the Great started doing his wars of conquest, eventually he was turned back. Uh, most, of the ex- most of the Greeks were able to effectively resist him.
1: Interesting. Well, the, the, uh, again, the common response from, um, I guess, communists is that anarchism is a, is a leftist ideology originally. And I, I agree with that historical analysis, but um, is there any examples of anarcho-capitalist societies that have existed and thrived? Because I'm honestly, I'm not familiar if there are. Uh, well, it depends on how
2: you find, define anarcho-capitalist. I mean, if you define a, an anarcho-capitalist. Just respect
1: for private property, essentially. Yeah,
2: well, well, most of the places that I just described had property of some kind. I mean, they may not have defined property exactly in the same way modern anarcho capitalists were, but these weren't communal societies necessarily where everything is shared in common. I mean, maybe some of them were. But that that wasn't really the norm either, you know. I mean, you had property. I mean, you had people that farmed their own land individually or as a family, or you know, you certainly you had personal possessions and you know, tools or you know, whatever. Okay. Uh, yeah, and certain. Well, I mean, I was talking about the SEVs some of those kinds of places. You have tons of private property, you know, because they're commercial developments, you know. So yeah, so I mean, none of the, none of what I'm discussing here really. Has anything to do with the standard socialism versus capitalism dichotomy, which I think is actually a false dichotomy. Uh, the, I think that the, uh, the debate that goes on between you know what is socialism, what is capitalism. A lot of people, when they say they're defending capitalism, what they're really defending, it, maybe not intentionally, is uh, uh, I mean, you have and an, a lot of anarcho-capitalists are basically what you call an individualist anarchist. You know, they're like uh, they just see capitalism as voluntary exchange. You know, like you know, I have my patch of tomatoes and I'm going to trade that to you for your patch of you know corn or whatever um, and but when when leftists talk about capitalism they're not really talking about that they're talking more about plutocracy or like uh, logopolies
1: and monopolies yeah and that kind of Cor- corporatism fascism yeah, yeah so they're
2: they're 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 arguing from different premises um, and of course uh, there there are socialists that when they talk about socialism what they mean is things like voluntary collectives and communes and all that kind of stuff whereas People on the other side of the spectrum, when they think of socialism, they think of the Soviet Union, these top down command economies and totalitarianism.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: like that. So, it, when those kinds of debates tend to, tend to get very convoluted because they have so many, uh, there are so many different ways in which people define these terms, and, and different sides are often arguing for such different premises that, that everything just gets lost in the mix.
1: No, that's that's totally true, and that, that's exactly why I'm asking is because you know the the anarcho socialists oftentimes will will say that the anarcho capitalists are are you know out of their minds because if you're going to have respect for private property rights, it's going to be uh, imperative that you have a state to defend those rights. Whereas the anarcho capitalist argues, no, you can have you know um, privately ran arbiters and things of that nature that can can settle disputes amongst people. And I'm just curious if if that has has ever come about where they actually created non-state entities to, to settle disputes and things of that nature. Well,
2: nature, well, medieval Ireland and Iceland come close to that. Uh, okay. There's a joke. There's a historian. He did a lot of writing on this in the, I guess in the seventies, his name was Joseph Peden, who wrote a, quite a bit about medieval Ireland. And he was a libertarian. He, he was interested in the similarities between uh, medieval Ireland and, and, um, and, and anarcho-capitalism, and also medieval Iceland as well. Um, there have been some writings like David Friedman, who's the son of David Friedman. He's written about Iceland as sort of a prototypical anarcho-capitalism.
1: Well, it's interesting to me that uh, you're such a historian on this, but I don't, I don't actually know uh, your political leanings. It, it, you seem very, um, obviously, very schooled in this. Do you have a, a preference or a leaning or, or you know, a hope with all of this?
2: Uh, well,
1: I my
2: views are complicated. Um, let's see. I, I I'm I'm what I call I call myself either a pan anarchist or a an anarcho pluralist or maybe an anarcho ecumenicalist in the sense that I'm interested in all the different different schools of anarchist thinking. Um, an analogy that I often use is to religion. Uh, within religion, you have all of these meta paradigms, like say Christianity. Right. But then within Christianity, you have all of these major traditions: Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Protestantism, and then you've got these traditions within those traditions, and then splinter groups and sectarian groups and offshoot groups. And for example, if you look at everything that comes under the banner of Christianity, you have the high church Episcopalians with their liturgies and all that, and you've got the, the snake handlers, and then you've got some guy in a, you know, in a storefront, in a shopping center with his own church. And then you've got the Vatican with all of its ornamental rituals. And, uh, and then you've got the Quakers who are you know pacifists and they don't even have clergy. And, and then you've got the, uh, you know, you've got gay churches. Uh, there's a, there was a the metropolitan community church was founded for gay people. And then you've got the you know, ultra homophobic um, Westboro Baptist church and, even stuff like the church of Satan and the church of Scientology and these ancient, these atheist Sunday assemblies, even those are sort of like offshoots of Christianity because they wouldn't be calling themselves church if they weren't influenced by that wider cultural framework. And I kind of approach anarchist theory the same way. I mean, there's not just one anarchism. Uh, You know, like if you look at, uh, in fact, I read this thing by a political scientist once who was talking about different political philosophies. and he was saying that, there are about as many different types of anarchism as there are other philosophies put together. And I think that's probably true. Uh, I mean, partially at least. And uh, James Corbett, I don't know if you're familiar with him. James Corbett is a YouTuber who's got, what is that show? I guess, you know, the Corbett Report.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I know. I know. the name.
2: Yeah. I've met him once too, Um, but um, he, yeah, he says that anarchism is basically an ecosystem of philosophies, you know, but I, I, and uh, I know there was a really interesting book that was published way back in 1900 about uh, uh, the different schools of anarchism that existed at the time. And this was written by a German uh, jurist named Paul Elsbacher. Uh, and he was talking about the, what he called, the, what I guess what would be called the big seven theorists of classical anarchism at the time, which was Bakunin, uh, Tolstoy, uh, Tucker, William Godwin, um, Max Stirner, Proudhon, and Kropotkin. And he was saying, really, all of these are individual philosophies in and of themselves. I mean, each one of these can be considered its own political paradigm. You know, it's, they're, they're not even—they're somewhat related to each other, but they're not the same philosophies. Uh, and that's kind of what I am. I'm sort of my, my viewpoint is sort of like a, you know, an umbrella for all of these different kinds of anarchistic philosophies. Sure. But I think the way anarchism in practice would work on, sort of, on, on a meta level. I mean, excluding things like these isolated utopian communities and stuff would be... If you look at uh, politics in the ancient world and, and antiquity, what you see is that god emperors were the norm. They had this idea that we worship the emperor as a god like the, the Egyptians, for example, thought that the pharaoh was a descendant of the sun god Ron. Uh, the Romans had that. They had the cult of the emperor and, and all that kind of stuff. And that was that was fairly common in the ancient world. In fact, um, the Japanese had a system like that as recently as 1945. I, you could you could argue that the North Koreans have a system like that today, even though it's under this kind of communist quasi-communist gloss. You know, They actually in their system promote the idea of the Kim family having magic powers and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, So, but that kind of stuff was the norm uh, in antiquity, and then when the Abrahamic religions and the other monotheistic religions came along, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Zoroastrianism, some of the others, monotheistic Hindu traditions, they started doing away with the uh, god emperors, and then they started having something like the divine right of kings, like in the Christian realm, they would say, well, we don't really believe the kingdom of God anymore. We just think he's God's right hand man or something. or And Sharia is the Islamic version of that. So you, know, you find the same concept in different traditions. And then when you start to getting into, say, the early modern period, you get into the Protestant Reformation and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and all of that, you see that they these kinds of ideas start to go away. You tend to have more, quote-unquote, liberal reforms of religion that develop, and and then, uh, you know, first you have, say, the Anabaptists who want to separate church and state, and then you have more liberal Catholics, and say, you know, maybe the not have so much power, and then you start getting philosophies like, uh, you get the Quakers and some of these other religions that are more radical, and say, maybe we shouldn't have slavery, and and then you get uh, secular thinking like deism and rationalists and atheists and anti-clericalism and all that. But then out of that, you create this new philosophical paradigm that becomes classical liberalism. And then out of classical liberalism, you get these modern oligarchic or democratic republics or whatever, you know, like, you know, the early ones were America and France and and some of those. Uh, And I think that anarchism on that level, on a meta level like that, would be end up being something like, uh, uh, kind of like these kind of, these transformations that have happened before, where you would reject statist philosophies and all the things that are associated with it. And you would embrace, you know, anarchistic philosophies or anti-state philosophies or voluntaristic philosophies or decentralist philosophies of which there are many, right? And then in practice, it would be just like a major world religion, you know? Just like uh you know, you, you know, just like in Christianity, you've got the Catholics and Protestants and Baptists and Quakers and all that. You'd have all these different types of anarchism. You know, you'd have these uh, and proto-anarchisms and you know, quasi-anarchisms, uh, like anarcho-primitivism and anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-capitalism and mutualism and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and and it would look like the you know, like worldwide there are hundreds of thousands of church denominations or or another example might be something like food production. Like, look how many different types of restaurants there are. Right? Now, in the Soviet Union, where agricultural production and food production was entirely centralized under the um, state planning system, you didn't have restaurants or food store, or grocery stores the way we think of them. Um, you, you would have, uh, instead of having like Kroger's or you know, well, some of the other grocery store chains, Safeway or one of those. Instead of having those, you would have food store number one, food store number two, food store number three. So it, it's very homo- homogenous. But once you started, once they started opening up the economy to more but compared to what they had before, decentralized systems of production, then you start to see uh, a lot of different types of restaurants and food stores and that kind of thing that that you know, is a great deal more diverse. Um Hey, the same thing was true with when, separ- when you had separation of church and state. When church and state was separated, you know, the, like the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was like the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Uh, but it, it, was, it was everything. But when you start to have separation of church and state, it's not that everybody became an atheist You state, but see all kinds of religions. I mean, a lot of the religions that you have in America today are because of that. You know, these you have all you have the Christian scientists and, and Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, I mean, all of that would have been illegal, you know, in the Middle Ages. Um and you could you could cite other examples. One example I like to cite is indigenous communities. Uh, if you look at the kinds of indigenous uh, ethnic tri- ethno tribes that existed in different parts of the world, really on every continent, you know, every region of every continent prior to the rise of states, what's interesting about them? One of the things that's interesting about them is how diverse they were, just in terms of clothes, you know, appearance, uh, religion, rituals, food. Uh, you know, marital arrangements, uh, you know, the kind of drugs they took. Yeah. You know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, and I think anarchism in practice would be kind of like that. You'd have that level of diversity. Uh, so, you know, so you would have, so you would have extreme diversity uh, and you'd also have, uh, you know, so, certainly you'd have a much wider spread, uh, much wider dispersion wow. of power, which leads to more diversity.
1: That, that was an absolutely beautiful uh, description of of your belief system, man. I I am shell shocked. But um, I I think that it's it's kind of ironic in a, in a sense that your description of it was analogized with um, you know theism or religion. Given that so many people are anarchists because they want to get away from the state, which they believe is a religion at this point. So I I thought that well, was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, th- I think that's interesting. But but the the question it, it leads me to is. Is it your belief that humanity can only evolve past statism with uh, a quasi-religious, you know, fundamentalism towards anarchism? Because it it seems as if you're describing anarchism as a, as a you know a new, new theology almost.
2: Well, no. Uh, another example might be classical liberalism. Uh, if we look at classical liberalism, that really is the prevailing view, at least on a very general, generic level in most countries today. If you look at uh, every country around the world that's considered a sovereign state by the UN—I think there's 150 of them. No, about I think there's 100, 195, 193, and then there's another, you know, 30 or 40 or something that are kind of territories. You know, that's, that's not entirely sure whether they're actually sovereign states. Disputes about that. Uh, but but most of these places now, most countries have the standard so-called democratic, liberal, parliamentary type of government. You know, every, every country in, on the, in the entire uh, European continent, every country in the Western Hemisphere, except Cuba, which is a one-party state, um, you know, most of the Pacific Rim, East Asia, uh, you know, except China and, and, and North Korea, Vietnam, a few places. So India, uh, which is the world's second uh, most heavily populated country, they have the same basic liberal democratic paradigm. Um, increasingly the African states. Um, so so that, all of that is the, is the result of the influence of the Enlightenment and, and classical liberalism, social contract theory, you know, if you go back and you trace the origins of classical liberalism to Hobbes and, and Locke and, and Rousseau and, and Voltaire, all the ones that came out, Montesquieu, I mean, and then the American Revolution, the French Revolution, all these early revolutions. Uh, all of that was had largely exported throughout the rest of the globe and has taken root in most countries now. Uh, so, where mo- most countries around the world ha- are basically quote unquote liberal, you know, in, in this very general historic sense. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not that many countries today are still absolute monarchies. You find some in, in uh, the Middle East, uh, the Gulf states primarily, you find a few in South Asia. Uh, but that's that's sort of a thing of the past. Just like you don't really find that many places that are full-blown theocracies. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is one. Iran is sort of one. A few other Middle Eastern countries. Uh, uh, or then there's places where it's sort of a watered-down theocracy where religion has a lot of influence in the state, but it's not the entirety of the state. Um, and same thing with hereditary aristocracies we don't have that many parts of the world where you still have barons and dukes and counts and all that kind of stuff again you have a few places like that but but not oh or, or if they do or where they do have that it's not that important you know they don't take it seriously um, you know, like the, the, the royal family of Britain is, is, a, is a perfect example I mean the real power in Britain is they have the Parliament and you know and they have the interests that are behind the Parliament um, and the king, the queen, you know, I mean, she was kind of a joke, uh, but, uh, but I think anarchism on this kind of meta paradigm would be like that. It would be the same way that classical liberalism replaced these old loyal aristocratic, theocratic traditional societies, or to use a religion analysis, the way, you know, the way that monotheist religions replace these older pagan religions or the way that these modern, you know, either more liberal religions or non-religions you know deism or atheism or whatever replace these with with, with theocratic religions
1: so it it seems that the natural follow-up question is that you know given that it took an enlightenment to get to the you know classical liberal dominance across the globe is that also what you believe is necessary to have an anarchist kind of wave and and do you see any signs of that
2: well, on a meta level, I think it would be what I'm describing would be necessary for, say, civilizational transformation. Now, there are anarchists who say they don't believe in civilization. They're, they're called anti-civil anarchists. So that, that's another debate, I guess. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, on a meta level, I think ultimately that's what it would take. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not intermediary stages and, and you know, transitional forms. Uh, you know, Long before we had separation of church and state, You had Anabaptist communes just kind of, you know, going off and doing their own thing and resisting the Catholic Church or, you know, Quakers and and groups like that. So that's how that's how it always starts. Uh,
1: So could could this, in fact, be part of a very long cycle that's natural in humanity and, and we just haven't been around long enough to see it that you go from kind of a anarchist hunter-and-gatherer type society you evolve through you end up back at classical liberalism and then you somehow uh, you know re-enlighten and you evolve back to anarchism is that possible
2: yeah well, I mean that's possible I know I don't know of any specific you know law of history or scientific theory or whatever no
1: it, it would be a historical just and the reason I bring it up is just simply that you know it it seems as if kind of like with I mean just with life you have kind of a birth and then An evolution of some sort and then the death and 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 it seems as if the state could be the same entity it just it just comes down to like does the state uh, God what's the word Uh, reincarnate faster than than it can die Um, I don't know
2: well you know what's interesting uh, about the 20th century is that the 20th century in many ways at least in parts of the world was an effort to resurrect the older God emperor states of antiquity. I mean, if you look at the, some of the kind of states that existed in the 20th century, there was the Third Reich, there was Stalinist Russia, there was um, you know, Maoism and, and Pol Potism and the Kims and North Korea. Those are some of the more extreme examples. But you, Then you find other, plenty of examples in the 20th century of states emerging where you had heads of states that were worshipped as godlike beings, even if they didn't literally believe they were a god. They, it, it amounted to the same thing. You know, I've always said that 20th century totalitarianism is really just a resurrection of the old, you know, very ancient uh, pagan uh, god-emperor concept, you know, the Roman emperors, the Pharaohs, and all of that kind of stuff, because that's exactly the same kind of framework that all that had. Um, But what's interesting is that that kind of thing seems to have sort of uh, gone out in many ways. Now, I I see a lot of uh, commentary in the mainstream press about how... Um, they lament the rise of populism. They all say that, uh, well, you know, we had this, we had the end of the Cold War. We had, you know, way back in World War II, we defeated fascism and, and we defeated all these totalitarian ideologies. And then we had this idea like, are you familiar with Francis Fukuyama? It was the guy who theorized about the end of history. And we just yeah. need the rest of the world to keep up with, say, you know, Europe and the United States and all that. Yep. nowadays you, you see people retreating from that. You see people. You see some people, some more mainstream commentators saying, "Well, it looks like the liberal era is dying," because you see these, these populist movements rising in different parts of the world and that kind of stuff. And they'll lament, you know, everything from Donald Trumpism and all the way to you know Putin and you know, the, um, you know variations of this kind of stuff that you find all over the place. But what populism in its present form tends to be, though, is it's more an anti-elitism than anti-liberalism in many ways. It's because what's happened is that in the last few decades or half a century, you've seen power increasingly concentrated on a global scale, uh, you know, through international institutions, through American, you know, polar hegemony, through, you know, all kinds of things, uh, globalization and all that. So I think there's more, there's kind of a, what we're starting to see now a sort of a way of backlash against that, where you have more and more people saying, you know, like in the EU, for example, you have Brexit, you know, you have people saying, well, what do we really need to have the whole continent taking orders from Brussels, you know, and uh, and you see that in in, a, in the United States. I mean, whatever the limitations of Trumpism or Bernie Sandersism or any of this kind of stuff, it's the, that's a, all of that has a very populous flavor. You know, there's some people saying,
1: we're tired
2: of people like the Bush family or the Clinton
1: family, you know, we yeah. don't want any be more of them. Even, even, Ron, even Ron Paul's limited success was largely based off of a populist uprising right. that, you know, against the Federal Reserve and things like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting how we, we had this wave of totalitarianism uh, in the 20th century that I think was sort of an effort to reclaim these older God-emperor state, But then that faded. And then we had this kind of globalized liberalism. And now there's this populist anti-elitism that's brooding. So I, I find I'm curious as to where that's going to go. Of my, me, one of my,
1: you and me both, brother. I, it's very, it's very nerve wracking, but it is hopeful.
2: One of my, uh, one of the main influences on my own thinking was Nietzsche. You know, I think of all the 19th century philosophers, he was one of the ones that really had some of the most prophetic views of the future. Because what Nietzsche argued in the 19th century, like his, his death of God concept is what he's probably what he's most known for. But a lot of that is misinterpreted. He, he wasn't so much an anti-clerical, radical, like say, uh, a, a Richard Dawkins type or somebody like that today. That's not what he was concerned about, the the idea. Well, the church is a force for oppression. Look what he did in the Inquisition. He probably would have opposed that, but he, that wasn't what his motivation was. Uh, he was saying that with the death of these traditional values, religion and, and other forms of traditionalism, uh, societies had sort of become uh, unraveled the sense of losing their, what had anchored them for a while. If you, if you go back to the pre-modern period and ask people things like, why do you do this? Well, it's tradition. We've always done it this way. Or well, it's, the, it's religion, it's what the religion teaches. Or, well, the king, you know, he's just he's the, he's the king because he's the king, you know, because he inherited his position from his father, who was also the king. You know? And people didn't, all people didn't really think beyond that. Uh, and then when you start to see all the upheaval that happened during the Enlightenment and during the Industrial Revolution and all of that, and as well as scientific advancements, you start to see all these older ideas fading away or, or becoming less credible and and weakening. And uh, and Nietzsche was interested in the social impact that was having. He was saying, "Well, you know, all these traditional values are breaking down, and people are just kind of losing their their uh, moorings in that sense. You know, these traditional anchors have, are are being pulled up. So, what are we going to do?" Uh, and what Nietzsche was very critical of the intellectual plants of this time period because he saw them creating all these new religions. And the, and what the death of God story is. It's a, that statement is based on a, a parable that he wrote. It's in one of his books, The Gay Science. And what he's actually doing is he's making fun of European intellectuals in the 19th century. And he's saying, all of you people think you're so enlightened. You, know, you think you're so scientific. You're so modern. You're so progressive. You're so technologically astute. You don't, you, think, you say you reject superstition. You don't you, know, you don't worship God anymore. You don't go, you, know, you don't worship the king anymore, but all you're doing is creating new religions. And he would point to all these things that were developing at the time. You're saying socialism, communism, nationalism, you know, racial eugenic theory, like Houston, Stuart Chamberlain and that kind of stuff. You know, all these things are just new religions. Uh, you're just creating new religions to replace the old ones. And he I, would, I would say
1: that scientism is that today. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he, uh, and he, was, he predicted the 20th century was going to be a time of great warfare between these rival ideologies. You know, he's saying these are new religions, and they're going to have a showdown in the 20th century, just like 30 years War between Protestants and Catholics in the, in the 17th century. And it more or less happened.
1: I was um, going to say, he wasn't wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he thought it would be the 21st century before people would really have to start coming to terms with the Unmooring of these traditional societies that happened way back in the 18th and 19th century, and here we are. You know, wow, yeah, uh, and it's, yeah. So you're talking about scientism. That's really interesting because, yeah, I mean, you, it, of course, all of that has really been exposed. I think with this COVID pandemic thing over the last year or so, because you, you see how worshipful so many people are, particularly educated elites, are when it comes to science. Uh, it's a uh, yeah, I mean, how many Facebook memes have you said, have you seen where people are saying, I believe science, you know, yeah. like, like, okay, so you believe in the, uh, you know, the the geocentric solar system <laughs> that was the science of its time, you know, it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's.
1: I, I, I joked online today. Do you, do you believe in uh, doctors masturbating hysterical women? Cause that was pretty common practice for a few hundred years. So.
2: Right. <laughs> or, or there was a, there was an innovative physician, I believe in the 19th century who insisted doctors should wash their hands before operating. <laughs> right. or doctors Like, no, we don't need to do that. That's stupid. Yeah.
1: Uh, exactly. Uh,
2: yeah. So uh, yeah. So you start to see this worshipful attitude towards science also, I think health generally. I think that uh, I, if you're interested in libertarianism, you may be familiar with Dr. Thomas Szasz. But Thomas Saz was a psychiatrist who did a lot of writing back in the post, mostly in the post-war period, the '60s and '70s. But uh, uh, very, uh, very, very critical of the medical profession, very uh, critical of the psychiatric profession, saying that uh, these are the these are the white coat priesthood, you know, like the Psychiatrists and physicians are just a new priest, you know. Instead of people going and getting their, you know, uh, voodoo medicine from the from the shaman or whatever, now they get it from the uh, the, the guy with the white coat and the stethoscope or whatever, because
1: he knows. Uh, yeah. Rothbard wrote about it in Anatomy of the State. He described that you know science would be the new the new religion or the new uh, the the kind of the final phase of uh, statism in a sense. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, exactly, and you see all these different currents uh, being bent towards each other. You see this fixation on health. Uh, you know, like I know when Mike Bloomberg was the mayor of New York, he was trying to put all kinds of restrictions on sugary beverages and fatty foods, and you know, you know, I mean, he was like, he was basically a prohibitionist. You know, he was like he was like a drug warrior only against food or something. You know. Yeah. And uh, so, so you see that, this fixation on health, this fixation on science, uh, this fixation on progress, you know, like, uh, you know, there must always be every progress. Um, you know, I mean, progress is good. I mean, there's a such thing as progress. I, I do think there's progress, but, uh, but you have progressives who sort of have this worshipful worshipful view of progress where the idea is that the worst thing you could ever be is to be reactionary or to be backward, you know. It's, uh, although the problem with that is that what's considered you know, reactionary or progressive or whatever in one time might not be considered progressive in another time. Racism was considered to be progressive at one point. If you go back and you look at what you know, racists from the 19th and 20th, early 20th century were saying, you know, they weren't a bunch of backward hillbillies necessarily. They were you know, educated people with you know, university degrees and science they, they
1: were the intelligentsia of that day.
2: Right, exactly. In fact, there's a really interesting book about that by Thomas Sowell called uh, "The Race and the Intellectuals," and he talks about this. He talks about how, in the late 19th or 20th century, racism—you know—the kinds of people who would you'd be reading "White Fragility" or books like that today—racism uh, was considered, you know, in vogue among those people
1: in those yeah, days. Very much so. Yeah, they popularized phrenology and all sorts of crazy shit. Right.
2: Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can look up uh, textbooks that were used in medical schools. Uh, from that time period, where they talk about how you can tell how intelligent someone is by measuring their skull, and yeah. uh, or, or you can or you can look at old criminology books, and they'll talk about how well you can tell if somebody's inclined to be a criminal by the length of their fingers and all this
1: weird <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And you would have been called a, a science denier a hundred years ago had you decided right,
2: right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So you have this modern paradigm that's developing that we this worshipful view of science, health, progress. Uh, and of course you have this wokeness stuff. That's a part of that. That's all being, you know, being incorporated into that, you know, as the the, the, the latest moral panic. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're in an interesting place now.
1: No, no kidding, man. Well, I, this has been incredibly informative. I'm going to have to listen back to it like two or three times. Uh, it, it is T Keith Preston. Do you, uh, you just go by Keith though. So I guess the, yeah. the, the, the T is. My name is
2: Troy Keith Preston. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I usually go by Keith. Yeah.
1: And, and you can read more about him at uh, attackthesystem.com. Do you have any social media at all?
2: Uh, none of any importance. Uh, okay. Uh, Websites, really.
1: Okay. Yeah, no worries, man. Well, I, I really appreciate the time. I, I feel much more educated on my own belief system and in, in a way that I, I did not expect fully. I, you, are, you are a true encyclopedia of knowledge. I cannot believe how you rattle this stuff off. So uh, are you a college professor by chance? Because you should be. Yeah. Yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, my God. Social science. Well, well, thank God we have a few good professors le- left in this country because we need it, man. Um, well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street.
0: Appreciate y'all. World premiere? Welcome to Liberty Lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus is scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening Scared Hollywood, lefties lyrical fappin' in. A typo when Luke might bring the nooses We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit Know I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit yeah. Peter Quinonez, invite me on which podcaster sends custom songs part of the problem, Now nah, I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of liberty now hear me roar beat running out, but I got a bit more Robbie the fire, always running his mouth but I made him a sandwich, now nah, I'm man of the house no malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit, friends against government just call us fags, Copy the Cairo put mummies in the bag, Allowable opinions get thrown on the ground, silky smooth time was the only sound, getting so hot must be air july screaming in the mic a Remember rip of 59 miles ratio showed that black guns matter now all these lefties got crazy small bladders none of us wanted war but we're ready you know i be bopping and Welcome rock steady you. liberty lockdown piss scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yes, yeah, on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Get into the show.